Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome back to the Intercooler podcast, everybody. And also welcome back to us, because we're back after taking a summer break. We were off last week. There wasn't an episode of the podcast, but we are back now. And I suppose the nature of uh, taking a week off during Monterey Car Week is that there's an awful lot of car news happening uh, while we're away. So that's what we're going to do with this episode, is just catch up on some of the bits and pieces that have happened. Um, before we get started, though, Andrew, we have a new jingle. Um, so I just, I just played it at the start of the podcast there. I think it's quite good, isn't it? We had a jingle in the Drive Nation days, um, yeah. but we haven't had one since we changed to the Intercooler. So thank you to Stephen Harrington, who, um, who cut together that jingle for us. Uh, and I, I will just give him a plug because it's, it was very good of him. Um, if you need a jingle or if you're looking for a podcast producer give Stephen Harrington a shout. I'll put his email address in the description um, of this podcast as well. Um, but yeah, so we're back after a week away. I suppose the big news uh, is that there is a new Lamborghini Countach, um, which is uh, actually, it's an amazing, I didn't think I'd ever say that, but I can tell by the face you're pulling that you're not necessarily behind Okay, hang on. Let's just, I just want to get your initial thoughts and then we'll talk about all the specifics. But initial thoughts, you're not so keen. Well, I don't know where to begin. Um, I don't have a problem with car manufacturers producing cars that their customers want to buy. And I've read a lot of stuff about how cynical it is and, and that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of comments like that have been applied to a, a lot of other cars, which I've not been overtly critical of. So, but... I just don't think they've done it very well. I mean, okay, <laughs> ah. so, there's, so there are two fundamental points to this. Um, you know, firstly is, you know, I don't think that great design ever looks back. 
you know, you think of the, the greatest design cars that there have ever been um, from, I don't know, on one particular level, a Mini or an E-Type Jaguar, um, you know, a McLaren F1. Um, I mean, you know, wherever you go in history, you know, name a car. I mean, people will say, oh, well, you know, the new Fiat 500, but it's only, people only like the design of that because it's based on something else. Um, and... I, you know, so fundamentally, I think when you go down that road, um, and you know, maybe there's, you know, there's a conversation to be had about the Alpine here, but I think, I think it is different because the A110 is clearly, I mean, I don't think it's as good looking at cars as the original. I think very few cars are, but I think what it is doing is, is acknowledging the original car. It's not, you know, trying to completely and utterly, well, copy is probably too strong a word but to be a modern recreation of it um, by getting as close to its styling cues as possible which is what this new Countach um, seems to be doing Um, and yeah and and that's my problem it's not so much that they've gone down the retro thing which I just don't think it looks very good it looks like a sort of a modern kit car designer's interpretation of a of a Countach and when you are dealing with I mean I don't actually I really, really admired Man- uh, Marcello Gandini for doing the original Countach. I thought it was an amazing looking car. For me, of the supercars of those eras, because I, I like sort of more sculptural design, you know, I think a Ferrari Boxer or even a Maserati Bora is a technically more beautiful car than a Countach. But there's no doubting at all that the original Countach, particularly the early cars, um, and, you know, the 1971 concept, um, most of all, is an absolutely iconic piece of design and i can use that word in that context because i genuinely think if ever there was a supercar iconic piece of design it is the Countach. and i think that you revisit that at your peril because what you're saying is well here we are 50 years down the road and with all we've learned you know a we're frankly arrogant enough to think that we can do that better it's like someone coming along and trying to remake Psycho or something like that. Some, you know, some absolutely extraordinary piece of cinema, which at the time people go put on a pedestal and just go, well, you know, let, let's not visit that again because how do you make it any better? And I feel the same way about this. I think they were, I think they'd set themselves up for a fall because I, I can't really imagine how they could do that and come out with something where we all go, oh wow, that's that. Do you know what? that actually does justice to the original design, let alone do better. Um, so, yeah, it's not so much what they've done for me as the way they've done it. Um, and I obviously haven't seen the car. Nobody's seen the car uh, unless you've been um, over there. Um, so, you know, hopefully I will at some stage get to see it. I don't imagine after this I'll, I'll get to drive it. But, um, you know, I... Yeah, I... Sometimes cars look different in the flesh to how they look in the photographs. So I will reserve final judgment until then. But from what I've seen so far, it just, it looks a bit amateurish. And I think if ever there were a car which doesn't deserve to have that happen to it, it's the original Countach. There you go. Well, that is crystal clear. Yeah. Okay. It's, I find that fairly difficult to, to argue with. Um, so the whole point of this is that it was 50 years ago this year in 1971 at the Geneva Motor Show that the original Lamborghini Countach um, was shown the prototype, the show car. Um, I, I really loved that on the Intercooler app, the day after this new Countach was unveiled, we published a story by Mel Nichols, um, which is all about driving in 
an original Countach prototype in 1973 with Bob Wallace, the test driver. Um, yeah. I just thought that was a, a nicely timed bit of TI iconoclasm. You know, I just thought that was, you know, this is what we do. Everyone else is talking about this, but come over here, we're talking about this and it's more fun. Um, hopefully someone else got a kick out of that as well. But okay, let's talk about this new car because I suppose it's the way of the world these days, but ultimately it's an Aventador underneath. Um, it has the Aventador chassis and underpinnings, but it's got the drivetrain from the Cian, so it's the naturally the aspirated 6.5-litre V12, yeah, with the, the little electric motor and the supercapacitor. So it's about 800 horsepower, um, 30 horsepower or so from the electric motor. So it's four-wheel drive, still has that robotized manual gearbox, of course. Um, of course. Not to 60, not to 62 and 2.8, 220, 220 miles an hour, Around two million quid. Ah, uh, it's hundred and twelve yeah. cars at two million pounds each. Does that not strike you as being quite ambitious? But it's got the name though, hasn't it? Kuntash. If any name's going to sell, um, I suppose it's that one. It's interesting. I mean, the Kuntash and um, Harry Metcalf. If you're listening to this, I'd, I, you know, as, as a Kuntash owner, I would love to hear your view on it. Um, you say it's got the name. I think it does have the name. The Countach is, but I mean, Lamborghinis have just talking generally here. Lamborghinis have not been as collectible as as Ferraris, um, uh, and they don't have that sort of design longevity. I think it's because Ferrari raced, um, and Ferrari's seat has an authenticity. Um, surrounding it because it started as a race team and has always been one whereas Lamborghini never was um so I'll be I'll be very I'll be really really interested and also you know the marketplace it's crowded isn't it with cars you know with two million quid you know hypercars you know so many people were you know you know and and I guess there are a number of people who that sum of money is not important and they'll just tick every box and they'll have everyone because they can't bear the idea of, of not having one. But I just wonder, I mean, I suppose I can, and I may be completely wrong about this, but I can see a bunch of people um, thinking to themselves, I must have the latest Ferrari hypercar, I must have the latest McLaren hypercar, maybe even the next Porsche hypercar because these are iconic brands um, and I would never want to fall off the list because I'm part of a legacy. I'm part of a heritage, um, which I just don't, for me, I just don't see Lamborghini having. And, and maybe people may not feel quite so desperate to part with a couple of million quid for a Lamborghini in the way that they might for a McLaren or a Ferrari. I don't know. Maybe that's just my hideous prejudice. Um, but um, I'll be interested to see. It's a lot of cars hmm. for two million pounds. Yeah. It really is, I think. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's, I suppose we'll find out, won't we? And if they come out in a few months' time and say, oh, to, to increase exclusivity, we've decided we're only going to do 48, then we'll know, won't we? But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Yes, I, except, I except, except they've tied themselves on a knot, haven't they? Because it's, it's the LP112. The LP112 was the original product, product designation of the original Countach. So they can't reinvent that, can they? They can't sort of say, oh, well, actually, we found the prototype of the prototype, and that was the LP48. So <laughs> They're bound to it now, aren't they? And they might start discounting them or giving you know, bog-off offers or something. But I, I remember being at um, the Bahrain Grand Prix circuit a couple of years ago when um, they launched the Huracan Evo. Um, and Stefano Domenicali was there. 
he was still uh, Lamborghini CEO, I think, at the time. And I sat down with him one-on-one and just had a chat. And I said to him, um, would Lamborghini ever revive an old nameplate uh, or, you know, come up with some sort of recreation? Because it seems to me that Lamborghini, certainly relative to most other supercar companies, is the one that hasn't lent on its heritage or, you know, trawled up old names from the past. Um, and Domenicali said... They, Lamborghini would do something special for the anniversary of one of its iconic cars. And he didn't say any more than that. That's all he said. But that must have been, this must have been what he was talking about. Um, interesting. And I that suppose they, it was. Interesting, sorry, they didn't do it in 2016 um, for the Miura. Um, you know, to me, a Miura is a more, if I can use that word again, iconic car than even, than even a Countach. Um because it was so groundbreaking and so beautiful. Um, and they didn't decide to do it. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they do use bits of their old uh, name. You know, they still call things SVs and SVJs and all that sort and of thing. LPs. Yeah, and that all goes back to, you know, Muras and goodness knows what. So, um, but no, they've, this is the first time. Is this the first time they've actually come up with a car with the same actual name as one of its predecessors? I, I can't think of another, certainly. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I suppose it was inevitable that they'd do something like this eventually. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm like you. I haven't seen it in the flesh. Looking at it in pictures, I'm just... I think it looks okay. Maybe it'll look absolutely sensational when you see one in person, but I don't know. That would be a surprise. Um, okay, well, let's keep talking about outrageously expensive hypercars. Um, we'll just r- whistle through the Bugatti bullied quickly. Because we spoke about it when they unveiled the, the sort of concept thing back in October. They have now decided to put it into low-volume production. They'll build 40 cars. It's a track car. Four million euros each. Um, and it's, it's, it looks like a Le Mans car. It's, you know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't have the sort of volume, uh, the shape and the scale and the size of a conventional road car. It looks like a competition car. Um, but this is like the sort got, of spoiler for the Valkyrie, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose it's their retort, isn't it? Um, although I don't think it's road legal. Um, so it is quite oh, okay. different in that regard. And it's still got the W16 quad turbo engine, 1,600 yeah. odd horsepower on 98 octane fuel and on race fuel. But Aston Martin like are doing 40 Valkyrie AMR Pros, aren't they? That's true. Yeah, so Same it's a number. sort of direct competitive. That. I suppose they've, they've seen the likes of Ferrari come up with these track-only cars sell a bunch of them to you know their best customers and earn a load of revenue um this bolide is 14 50 kilograms with fluids something like 600 kilos lighter than a chiron and it's also therefore got more brake horsepower than kilograms so it's got a yeah over positive power to weight ratio yeah it's yeah it's it's going to be spectacular i'm sure that is going to be absolutely nuts um (laughs) i have driven one or two cars that do that um and th- th- yeah they're, they're, they're just animals they're just they're barely controllable i mean if you if you, you know a, a sort of late 70s early 80s formula one car will do that 500 kilos 500 horsepower um and it's yeah they're just they're just absolutely ridiculous have 1450 so how have they managed to that get seem that, a lot get, doesn't it 
<laughs> but well, a lot of weight as well. Based on, I don't know if it's based on the Chiron or not. I actually don't know about the underpinnings, or is it a ground-up car? Because it doesn't look like it shares anything with. No, I think if you can get anything that packages that powertrain into a you know a, a car for fourteen fifty kilos, then fair play. I mean, I, I imagine it's completely stripped out and everything else, but you know, fair enough. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah, I mean, it's a hell of a lot heavier than a Valkyrie, for instance. Um, but then it, yeah, that car's not got a W16 engine. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I've mentioned the Val- Valkyrie, so let's just move on to that because, I mean, this is quite interesting. I don't think too many of us saw this coming, but I think you wrote a piece for the Intercooler about the Valkyrie Spider, um, which was, again, announced last week. Um, 85 cars, more than 3 million quid, all sold out. Um, and actually, as you see it and as you reported it, Aston Martin had to do this. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, well, I think it was a, a bit of a slam dunk no-brainer for them, to be honest. Um, you know, as I said in the piece, I know that Aston Martin regretted pitching the price of the Valkyrie so low, so low at two and a half million quid. I mean, it's ridiculous <laughs> even having this conversation, doesn't it? But nevertheless, um, it sold so fast and they suddenly thought, you know, shit, we could have sold a stack more of these. Um, but... Um, they, you know, they'd said what they said about how many they're going to build, uh, and rightly stuck to that. Um, and then, you know, obviously, you know, out goes the old guard, in comes Tobias, who goes, but, but they were coupes, so there's nothing to stop us doing some spiders. And, you know, the car is different, it has different aero, it has, um, obviously the tub is slightly different because the doors now are dihedral, so they flip up, they're not the old gullwing doors, but it's, you know, it's pretty much. Uh, a very straightforward thing. I mean, to the extent that, you know, they've they've not found anywhere to put the roof. So if you want to take the roof off, you have to leave it at home or maybe stick it in the Range Rover with whoever it is ch- charging along after you with your, with your luggage. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, there were so many people who wanted a Valkyrie who didn't get one. Um, and, hey, now they can have one. Um, and I, I spoke to somebody at Aston Martin. I said, surely you must have really, really pissed off a load of Valkyrie owners who thought that they were buying into something that were they were only going to be, what was it, 125, 150 cars? I can't remember. 150, uh, I think. Yeah. 150, yes. Yeah, so I've, I've been away for a week and my mind's not functioning. But whatever it is. And then suddenly you're going to do, be doing more than half as many again. Um, you know, diluting that exclusivity. And, and the line is, on the contrary... Um, more than a few of them were very happy to have the opportunity to have both. There must be some who are cheesed off, though. There must be. I'm sure there must be. Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly there are significantly more Valkyries on the road than they, they thought there would be. Some will be cheesed off. There's, there's no question. But, you know, the, the, the spider will generate something like another quarter, quarter of a billion pounds in revenue. And I suppose someone, perhaps Tobias, has looked at it and gone, well, this car is once in a generation. We're just not going to do anything like this anytime soon again. Yeah. And as this you say, one really has really, to work. The, the, we can't really afford not to do it. Um, well, I mean, particularly if, as I, I've also heard, you know, but, you know, the Valkyrie has been a, you know, a great sort of halo car for the brand, but it's not been a, a profit center at all. I mean, you know, I, I, I've heard that, um, you know, it's not a moneymaker at all. Now, if this makes it a moneymaker, then... Yeah, then, 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 then great. You know, good luck to them. Mm. Yeah, they had this incredible asset in the Valkyrie. All that engineering that's gone into it, all the, all the, the coverage and all the chatter and all the noise surrounding it, and they've really got to capitalise on that. Um, and I, yeah, I think, I think, it, I think, fair play to them. Um, yeah, and a few cheesed off coupe owners. So be it. 
Um, okay, uh, well, before we move on any further, I just want to jump in with an extract from a TI Super podcast. TI Super podcasts are for app subscribers only. So if you want to listen to them, you have to go and download the app and subscribe. Um, five quid a month to do so, by the way. Go and do it now. And on the TI Super podcast, rather than me and Andrew shouting at one another, we, we actually talk to guests. And we've had some good guests on there um, already, actually. You, for instance, sat down with the CEO of Ford, Jim Farley, yeah, for what he described was his best interview ever. It was really good. It was really interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. And this one, Matt Windle didn't say this was his best interview ever, sadly. I was upset about that. Um, but I sat down with him at Goodwood. He's the, the, the MD of Lotus Cars. Um, and it was a good time to sit down and talk to him because... I mean, Lotus is just going through a proper renaissance at the moment, and he's the man tasked with making the most of it. They've got new backing, new support, proper funding. They've got a long-term vision and strategy, um, and it's his job to you know, roll that strategy out. Um, and so we spoke Emira, we spoke Evaya, um, and we also spoke about Lotus in sort of top-line motorsport. Does Lotus need to be involved in top-line motorsport? So let me just play... A few minutes of that for you now. Last time I was at Hethel, it was a few years ago, and I was just remembering this with Gav Kershaw earlier. Um, I was driving around the track itself through that quick corner windsock, yeah. and that was at the time where you still had to judge, uh, ju- you had to avoid a pothole <laughs> when you were coming flying out of that corner. I hear things are different now. Yeah. I've got to be honest, I quite like the, tra- <laughs> I quite like the track because it, it put a bit of jeopardy in there if you were going around Windsock Corner, didn't it? But um, no, it's, it's completely resurfaced now. You can go around there very safely, um, but still quick. Uh, and, um, but the whole, the infrastructure in the whole place, I mean, love you to come down as soon as you can so that you can see, you can see the changes have gone in, but built two new factories, put a new restaurant in, um, all of the sites done, signage, uh, all, the, all the protection for the staff, all of those things have gone in infrastructure as well that you can't see IT infrastructure we had to put a high voltage ring around the site because we didn't have enough power um, all of those things that are just not sexy but when you want to treble your production on site that, they're the things you have to invest in so we're really pleased with it it's, it's, um, it's as it should be I mean Lotus for me it, as, as you know I, I was there and I went away the Tesla and I came back and when I came back I, I walked around for the first time and it's always been a proper car company there. Always. It's had the people, it's had the facilities, it's got the track, it's got the history, it's got the engineering knowledge. It just didn't have the strategy or the investment in the place. So now it's got that, we should, we should be on our way, really. And if you want to listen to the full thing, it's on the Intercooler app. Um, and we're going to keep doing these TI Super podcasts uh, for app subscribers only. We've got another one coming up with a proper... I'm going to use that word, I'm afraid, legend of, of Le Mans racing, certainly, uh, Richard Atwood. Um, that is on its way. Um, but let's get back to it then. Um, I just want to talk to you about one thing that you um, got up to last week, Andrew, which yeah. was going to Loch Ness. You weren't looking oh, for yeah. any monsters, as I understand it, uh, but you were looking at a memorial to one John Cobb. Yeah, um, I've always been fascinated, literally since I was a kid, fascinated with the land speed record. Um, you know, I can just about remember Gary Gabalich blasting across the desert in his blue flame rocket car in 1970. I think he did 622 miles an hour. Uh, I think that's probably, I was, would have, I would have been four, I think. 
Um, and that's probably what captured my imagination. Um, but you know, I, I was particularly interested, obviously, in the British land speed record holders, and, and yeah, and yeah, and there have been, you know, there've been a few that Malcolm Campbell, Henry Seagrave, um, George Easton, John Cobb, obviously Donald Campbell, uh, Richard Noble, Andy Green, but I mean, of them all, um, Cobb is the one that I always found most fascinating because he was just like if you looked at him you'd never think for a moment that he was ever the fastest man on earth you think he was a provincial accountant um or maybe a you know i suppose he could have been a, a high court judge i mean he was this incredibly big man big bloke um you know not just in height but in physique uh, bare of a man uh but incredibly quiet he's spoken um quite serious very considered um and he just decided to go and do incre- i mean he, because he was so big he could never sort of fit into grand prix cars so he never had any history of doing that i think he did do Le Mans once can't remember what in or where he came but um he became famous for going around brooklands in his 24 liter napier railton um which um which still exists today uh, in a very original form still owned by the brooklyn's museum i have driven it um not quite as fast as he went in it but um maybe i'll tell that story another time uh, but he broke the outright the outright brooklyn's lap speed um the, the outer circuit record in 1935 at 143 miles an hour in that thing um with the car by no means always on the ground if as anyone who's seen the post on instagram you know there's a poster there's a photograph of this car completely off the deck probably at a thick end of 150 miles an hour on those skinny little tires i mean i mean the man had a, at the heart of a lion um and then once he'd sort of done that he turned his attention to the land speed record and he built this extra with reed railton he bought that he built this extraordinary thing um called the railton special um a teardrop land speed record breaker powered by um two v12 napier aero engines um which was all, all two completely separate powertrain so the front engine drove the front wheels and the rear engine drove the rear wheels uh which actually made synchronizing things a lot better uh, and then him and george easton in the 30s um had this incredible duel uh egging each other on to go faster and faster um and then um after the war in 1947 um he'd fiddled with the car a bit gone back and um became the first person to travel across the surface of the planet at over 400 miles an hour he set a land speed record of 394 in 1947 wasn't broken for 17 years i mean actually technically 16 because craig breedlove did go quicker in 1963 but back then jet cars weren't recognized so the actual land speed record went to donald campbell so donald campbell if anybody doesn't know broke the land speed record in 1964 but he was never the fastest man on earth Um, but campbell broke cobb's record um which was fine but cobb having got through that 400 mile an hour barrier and he set an average of 394 um he then thought well done land what's next well clearly water um and he built this jet boat powered by a an engine from a comet airliner called crusader um and he went after the the water speed record um and i don't i find the entire story there's a book out about it which i haven't read yet but i'm going to buy and have a look at um about the entire crusader attempt um and it's it is just terribly sad because it was all it was all filmed and you know that you can go on the internet and you can see footage of him with the queen mother two days before he died showing her around the boat and 
and everything else. Um, and, and, and actually, just because of the way that he holds himself and what he wears and the look on his face, you can, you can just get an impression of the kind of man that he was. And you can see him strapping himself in for his final... I mean, I find the entire thing terribly emotional. Um, and then honking off across um, the lock. Um, and, you know, his first run was really, really fast. Um, he'd he'd had a go a few days earlier and had done one, I think one in one direction at 200, 200 miles an hour, but for some reason the return run was slow. So he was cheesed off about that and he, he, and he went out and he did his outbound run and that was over 200 miles an hour and he was coming back and he was doing a lot more than 200 when he hit the wake of something. There was some control boat, there was some somebody in some boat who shouldn't have been there uh, had left some ripples on the lake um, and at that sort of speed in that sort of boat um, which was you know absolutely on the edge of instability all the time you know if you had didn't have anything other than a glass finish to you know then and yes and and the tragedy is 15 years later it happened to Donald Campbell again on Coniston Water um, in his Bluebird jet boat but he hit his own wake Campbell died because he was so keen to get to get the thing done he'd been up there for so long and he'd had a really good outbound run and as you know you have to turn around within the hour and go back the other way but he had plenty of time but I just thought he think he just thought why wait why wait just go back and Campbell hit his own wake um which was awful Cobb didn't Cobb was meticulous Cobb planned everything I mean he was a real real thinker as well as one of the bravest people who ever who ever lived um and you know, and that was that. He had the accident. Um, it was unsurvivable. They got his body out very quickly, but Crusader is still down there. But I only discovered recently, and I cannot believe it, because if you look up here on these shelves, I've got so many land speed record books. I didn't know um, that the people of Glen Urquhart, which is um, the little town on the shores of the block where he'd stayed and where the measured mile was, um, had produced this, this cairn and stuck it at the side of the A82. And if you drive down the A82, unless you know it's there, you won't see it because there is a little pull-in on the right-hand side if you're going southbound. But it's like three cars long and, and it's just a pull-in. There's, there's no sign for it anywhere. And, you know, if I hadn't known and I wasn't looking for it, I, you know, Dario Franchitti was replied and seller driven past there a, a thousand times, didn't even know it was there. Um, and it's one of, you know, you look at it and it looks like, I actually, I actually thought he was a beekeeper because it looks like a, a beehive. <laughs> um, but, and, and I thought, and I thought that rather sort of fitted the character of the man because what a, what a sort of quiet, gentle thing to spend your spare time doing. But, um, I can't, I looked it up. I was convinced. I was telling my wife, no, no, he was a beekeeper. That's why I said, uh, I can find no evidence of John Cobb being a beekeeper. So if anybody thinks that he was, but no, actually it's a traditional Highland can and they, and there are other ones and they look the same, but it's, a uh, uh, the only sadness is that all the foliage has grown up around it so it used to stand proud and you can see pictures of it originally um, and it's there and there is the lock behind him and you know it's a proper memorial um, and now it's still there the lock's still there but there's so much stuff that's grown up between the two um, but yeah I did that I, I've just you know I, I've just been on a little sort of tour of Scotland so I went to the Jim Clark Museum as well um, in Duns which I can highly recommend it's not very big um, but um, well worth it's probably a 10 minute if anyone's driving up the east coast up the a1 to edinburgh it's probably will add 10 minutes to your journey to go to go to duns and see it and i recommend that to anyone um and then yesterday i was in the i was in i wasn't i was outside the midland hotel in manchester where rolls is meant to have met royce 
um for the very first time so yes i've had a bit of a sort of i haven't meant to actually i was just going to scotland with the family for a week but um you must make the most of these opportunities and do what pilgrimages you can so um yeah yeah so no, well, john, I mean, john cobb great man it also yeah your tour of um sort of notable places this week last week has i suppose it highlights how many um, exciting and interesting and poignant and significant things happened um, to do with cars and you know things surrounding cars in this country I mean that it's just so densely packed with those sorts of sites and it, it really um, is and that's the point I didn't try to go to any of these places I was just sort of there and I thought oh I could go to there and then I could see that and then I could do that and you know, I didn't sort of plot my route and thought well first of all I want to go and see the Jim Clark Museum then I want to see the Cobb Memorial then I'll go to, I mean they were just you know they were just places that happened to be on my way yeah that's oh, great isn't it um, okay right we're going to do one more thing just to end this episode of the podcast. Um, I think you're probably feeling slightly trepidatious about this. Uh, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, Sebastian Vettel surprised an awful lot of people by being able to name every Formula One world champion in order from 2020 all the way back to 1950. He got them all right. Uh, it was an extraordinary feat, actually. And it demonstrates just what a student of the sport he really is. Did he name them or did he, did he actually get the year? Because I haven't seen any of this. Did he actually get the years in, in which... Well, he, he named them in, in order. So, he, yeah, year by year. Including himself? Including himself, yeah. I haven't seen this. <laughs> which I is bizarre, isn't it? This is going to go so is... badly wrong. Well, okay. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, I thought, I know a man who might be able to do that. So, we're going to flip on his head, though, and we're going to do 1950 to 2020. Yeah, I'll be okay. really good at the early stuff. And then you'll, you'll learn so much about what I think about Formula One by just how rubbish I am. I'm never going to be able to do it. But um, how long do, 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 do I just have to do it as fast as I can? Or do I, or can I just sort of talk well, you through it? Well, you can, no, you can take your time. But what, if you get one wrong, do, do you want me to jump in? Or do you want to carry uh, Yeah, no, jump in. Yeah, uh, okay. Yes, jump in. I'm quite nervous. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. Well, in your own time then, starting with 1950. I don't have to get the cars as well, do I? No, no, you don't. Okay, I'll do as many of the cars as I can. Right, uh, so okay. we start obviously with uh, the great Dr. Giuseppe Farina in 1950 with the Alpha 15, well, they've been in 158 then, um, because by 1951 it was Fangio, um, by that stage the 158 had a rear axle and they called it a 159. Then in 1952 it went to F2 regs and Ascari had the next two in the Ferrari 500, pretty much unchallenged, uh, largely because Fangio had had a big off and he missed half of the 1952 season. Uh, 1954, uh, obviously Fangio's back and we all remember that for the W1 people forget that he actually won a race at the beginning of the year in a Ferrari in a Maserati 250F so that has to contribute to his championship too 1955 obviously Fangio in the W196 1956 Fangio in the uh, did they call it a Lancia or a Ferrari but it was the Lancia D50 I think they probably called it a Ferrari 801 by that stage but that's what it was uh, 1957 Fangio again in the Maserati 250F uh, his last win at the Nürburgring the greatest Grand Prix ever run many say uh, 1958 Mike Hawthorne um, bit of a swizz that one because he only won one, one race that season where Sterling won four but nevertheless he won the championship by one point 1959 well we're into the mid-engine era now aren't we so we're into uh, Jack Brabham in the Cooper uh, and again in 1960 so we know about that 1961 was Phil Hill because Wolfgang Tripp, Tripp's got killed at Monza so Phil Hill in the Sharknose Ferrari 1962 Graham Hill obviously silly me um, in the uh, BRM 
1963, Jim Hart, Jim Clark in the Lotus 25. 1964, John Surtees, one of the closely, most closely fought championships of all time. Three, possibly four people, I think three people went into the last race with a chance of winning it, but he won it in the 158 Ferrari, although I think he also drove the 1512 that season as well. Uh, 1965, Jim Clark again in the Lotus. Was it 25 or a 33? One was a development of the other, probably both. 1966 was Jack Brabham, inner Brabham, first time um, anybody had done that, uh, winning a championship in a car of his own, making 1967 Denny Hume. In another Brabham. 1968, <laughs> um, Graham Hill in the Lotus 49. 1969, Jackie Stewart in the Matra MS80. Not sure. 1970, the our one and only posthumous world champion, uh, Jochen Rint, uh, in a combination of the Lotus 49 and the 72. 1971, Jackie in the Tyrrell Ford 003, I think, for most of the season. 1972, Emma at the time became the youngest world champion. He was only 25, and he did it in the Lotus 72. 1973, Jackie's final championship in the Tyrrell Ford 005 and 006. Uh, 1974 MO again, but this time driving a McLaren M23. 1975 uh, Nicky's first in a Ferrari 312T. 1976 obviously James Hunt in the M23. 1977 uh, it was uh, Nicky again, but this time driving a 312T2. 1978 um, was Mario. Uh, was it? Yes, it was in the Lotus 79. 1979 was Jody in the Ferrari 312 T4. 1980, Alan Jones in the Williams FW7. 1981 was Nelson Piquet's first. He was in a Brabham. Then Keki, who only won one race that season as well, in 1982 in the Williams. And then 1983 was Piquet again. Okay, so I'm going to take a bit of a pause for breath now. I think we're getting into the Prost era now. So, or is there another louder to come? I think there's another loud to come. But that was, yeah, that was it. He lost, now to won the championship by like half a point, didn't he, in 1980? What was the last one I did? Was that 83? PK in 83. 83 was the last one you did, PK. Okay, yeah. so, okay, fine. That, so then, then that's louder in 84 and then Prost in 85 and Prost in 86, obviously. Um, yeah. Um, where are we in the taste to? So 87, that's uh, Nelson again. Um, 88 was Ayrton. Um, in the great, uh, you know, in the MP44, 16 races, 15 wins, great battle with Prost. Know about that. Uh, and then 89. You see it? <laughs> 89. Okay, okay. Um, 89. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go Prost. And you haven't said anything, so I must be right. Okay. So good. So 1990 was obviously Ayrton again. That's easy. And uh, 1991 was Ayrton. 1992, Nigel. 1993 was Prost's last, wasn't it? So 1994, we then get into the... Michael. Benetton Ford, 94. Benetton Renault, 95. <laughs> oh, you're doing my head in. I've been... Okay, okay. Um, okay, so Michael, Michael. Is it Jacques Damon or Damon Jacques? It was Damon Jacques, wasn't it? It was. It was well done. Damon Jack. Okay, fine. And then <sighs> Mika. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh God. So, what does that take us to? So Can ninety-eight. You... Ninety-eight was Mika, and ninety-nine was Mika, and then it's easy for a bit because the next five was Michael, and then two after Fernando. So that takes us to two thousand and. 
six, seven, seven. Well, no, hang on, hang on. No, no, 2007 was Kimmy, surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so 2007 was next. So yeah, Kimmy, 2007. Okay, okay on okay. you go. Right, 2008, Lewis. Then I'll get really bad. 2009. I'm missing one. I'm missing one. Because I know it was, I know it was Vettel in 10. Who was 9? You'll kick yourself. Don't say a bloody word. Um, Jensen! <laughs> Jensen, Jensen, sorry, Jensen. God, I'm so sorry. 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 Uh, now I'm going to be rubbish. Um, so it's a combination of Vettel and Lewis with a Nico in the middle every year since. So let me guess. So Nico, I know, was 16. So Vettel did. So 10, 11, 12, 13, Lewis, 14, 15, Nico, 16, Lewis, Lewis, Lewis. And one more Lewis. And one more Lewis. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> well done. Can I go and have a lie down it. now, please? <laughs> Can I go and have a lie down now, please? That looked like a real effort. But bravo, you got it. And you got a lot of the cars right in yeah, the Yeah, but you notice well. I shut up on the cars later on. <laughs> <laughs> although, although, actually, if I thought about it, um, it's obvious, isn't it? Because it's all because... You know, when was the championship last won by anything other than a Ferrari, a Red Bull, or a Mercedes? It was the Braun year, but yeah. So that, I could probably have done that too, couldn't I? Oh well. I reckon, you, know I reckon you could have. You could have had a good go at it, but there you go. I mean, you said that you'd before we started. You told me that you would do well um, with the early years, and you'd struggle after around two thousand. And I yeah, could tell. You, I, think you I, were, I, I think I was. That's fairly accurate, wasn't it? You were grasping around for the 2009 winner for a little while, weren't you? But you, sorry, you got hold I'm of so Jensen sorry. Button eventually. <laughs> there you go. That was really impressive. Uh, you pulled it off. Uh, Sebastian Vettel managed it. You managed it the other way around. So, bravo. Okay. That was a, that was a stonking effort. Okay, we need to do Le Mans winners next. Okay. All right. Well, that's one for... Wait, it's Le Mans week, isn't it? So maybe we'll do that next week. Um, and, yeah, we'll see how you get on. Okay. Only with makes of cars. I can't do drivers. All right, we'll save that one and we'll put you to the test again. But yeah, from for now, well done. <laughs> I like that. But the thing is, if I know you're going to do it, okay, if I promise not to do any prep, but I might think about it a bit, is that okay? <laughs> that's okay, that's fine. As long as you don't have it written down in front of you. No, I won't you have it in front And of yeah, you no. promise not to do too much uh, swatting up. That's absolutely fine. Uh, good. Well, I enjoyed Who that. Who won the more in 1936? Ultimate pub quiz trick question. Who won the more in 1936? Nobody. Correct. There wasn't one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Ah, there you go. Uh, okay. All right. Well, God, I feel tired after that. Never mind you. Um, well, let's leave that one there. Uh, and we will put you, put you to the test again next time. But for now, thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah. Um, please rate and review the podcast. Go and download the Intercooler app as well and subscribe. Uh, and we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. All the best.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.